0: Good morning. Good morning. Turn the volume up. No, it's morning. Good morning. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Joe. Good morning, Dr. Bale. Yes, we're back to school. Welcome back to September. Welcome back to Pediatric Grand Rounds, starting the academic year 2014 2015 with our first Grand Rounds of the season, September 3rd, 2014. And we have an exciting year and an exciting um, month uh, to, kick off the, uh, to kick off the year. Um, I want to touch base a little bit on that in a second. But um, remind everyone, we are still September 21st as summer ends. We haven't ended summer yet. And it's warm and summery outside. We're still in the summer of Imagine Chad. And I've seen many of you, if not most, have participated in various events. We will be culminating and getting down a brass tacks on September 19th and 20th with our second summits. Friday afternoon here at the Medical Center as well as in Manchester and then gathering physically together in Grantham on the 20th. The more you can participate and contribute for us, the better the outcome will be in terms of our planning for our our bright future, but you can attend either day successfully, so please sign up, consider joining us and help us imagine and realize our, our future. Um, Grand Rounds, we have an exciting new committee of folks. Um, you raise your hand, you see what ends up happening, you end up in trouble. So George is going to continue to mentor uh, Sholene Nett and Kathy Shubkin to be our Grand Rounds committee. And they've already brought in a whole host of exciting speakers. But uh, thank you, Sholeen and, um, and Kathy and, of course, George. This month, we have uh, visiting professors from CHOP, Cornell, and Pittsburgh to end the month. But nothing will be better than, all I have to say is, today we have a cast of luminaries who will speak for themselves, and I will get out of their way.
1: Good morning. We thought that the uh, appropriate way to start up the academic year and to start our Grand Round season would be to uh, have the video uh, which was just shown. Uh, obviously there's a group of us who are responsible for Grand Rounds today, which uh, I'm the first uh, to hold forward. In fact, everybody in the room that I'm George Little. For those that you don't, uh, good morning, hello, and all that sort of thing. Uh, Nurturing compassion, meaning, and resilience in pediatrics has been something that we've had on the list for this Grand Rounds the first of the year for some time. There are five people listed on uh, the slide as speakers, uh, of which one is not here today. Uh, Pano Rodas is not here and able to join us today, and Joe uh, will be speaking about Pano a bit uh, later. Pano is uh, known to many, if not most, of the people here was a uh, very, very uh, special person. Bill Boyle is a pediatrician. Uh, he's been here, I think, a year longer than I've been here. Uh, he actually has a marriage status, he actually has a family, he actually does a whole lot of things Is having the same trouble-flunking retirement that I'm having. Uh, <laughs> and he was uh, the guy who was on call when Carol my first child was born, and so he's our family pediatrician and we've been uh, close for some time, and those of you who know Bill well uh, know that he was here as a primary care pediatrician, but also doing a lot of work uh, in areas such as CF, and is uh, an extremely uh, compassionate person. Martha McDaniel uh, has perhaps not as well known to pediatrics, although I suspect that most of us do know at least who she is. I'm not sure you've been here before to to, uh, participate in Grand Rounds, so welcome. Martha is a surgeon, uh, moved through CES to the anatomy department, uh, and now is uh, doing a lot of work uh, in the medical school over the medical school curriculum and a lot of uh, activities uh, along that line. I'm going to uh, start us out uh, and start off the grand rounds by doing something that isn't usually done. You usually get the objectives uh, sent to you and sometimes they appear in a slide and so forth uh, as they go through, but we have three objectives and uh, those are sort of the things you have to do for those of you who haven't uh, yet, and that would include the third year house officers who will be doing it this year, presenting grand rounds, you note know, that it's all very codified, you've got to fill out forms, and one of the forms you have to fill out is have three objectives, right? And somebody has to hound you and, and get all those objectives done and so forth, but today I thought what we'd do is maybe look at the objectives as a way of uh, starting us out. <clears throat> What we'd like to say today is that uh, those of us who are participating today, at the end of this session, will be able to accept and acknowledge the importance of compassion, meaning, and resilience in medicine, including pediatrics. And that means to accept and acknowledge, to make it even more of a part of what we do, to accept it into what we do every day, and to uh, acknowledge it publicly, to uh, profess, if you will, in the, uh, in the faculty sense uh, to the importance of, uh, of these issues. The second one is that when you leave here today, you will be able to cite examples of teaching compassionate care in the Geisel uh, Medical, uh, well, I should say School of Medicine at, uh, at Dartmouth. Uh, and what that uh, and the objective has been, and I think people like uh, Bill and Joe uh, have, have done this, Uh, right from the time the people uh, walk in the door. We want you to be able to cite examples. And the third is to uh, seek to continue and enhance the long time, and I'll get back to that in a minute, long time CHAD family-centered care commitment. CHAD and its predecessor here, before CHAD was officially a body, uh, Children's Hospital within a hospital, Children's Hospital at Dartmouth, has had a commitment to family-centered care, and in fact was one of the first places in the country to start family-centered care. And there, and uh, particularly on the, uh, on the OB service, uh, uh, where fathers uh, came into the delivery room, and then we changed visiting hours with regard to when uh, uh, people could see and siblings could see children. And then on up through to all the things that now happens with Chad within this institution, parents on rounds and that sort of thing, and within the region. We want that to be emphasized, and uh, that's part of part of the objective uh, 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 for today. Joe Donald, uh is a person who many of us know, Joe's been here for a while. Uh, Joe, and I didn't say I was going to say this, but I think it's known that you are Uh, Leaving his clinical activities, or trying to phase out of his clinical activities, where he has been a a, uh, extremely well-respected and important person, particularly within the VA VA community as an oncologist. More than that, Joe, for many of us and all generations of students, and uh, I'm one of them because I'm one of his students, uh, has taught me a lot. Uh, When I went through a session where he gave me a little seminar, a little uh, summary, a little talk. On the sanctity of work. And I got my reading assignments and so forth now as a personal uh, seminar that uh, that he gave me. But Joe and I have learned from our daughters. Uh, My daughter Malaika is uh, presently, uh, many of you know her, is a uh, pediatrician uh, at Randall Children's Hospital in Portland, Oregon. Joe's daughter Kathy is uh, Kathy, right? Katie. Katie. uh, went to medical school at Harvard and is now on the faculty at Harvard and did electives here and and so forth. Joe and I had breakfast with our daughters uh, a couple of times while they were going through the medical school admission process. I went down to Lou's and had breakfast and it was all excitement and we were talking about uh, filling out your, your applications and writing your letters. And we talked quite a bit about writing the letters and then... Uh, Katie went on to Harvard, and uh, Malaika went on to uh, Vermont, and they were home for Christmas or something, or i have forgotten when. So we went back to Lou's and we had breakfast again. And uh, Joe and I said to our daughters, we said, well, how's it going? How's medical school going? Are you excited? Are you, uh, uh, are you really learning about people? Are you, beginning, are you getting a chance to do what you want to do comprehensively uh, in, uh, in medicine and learning and in teaching? And, uh, and, and what are you learning about people and uh, life and so forth? And they listened to us for a while and they said, dads, dads, you just don't understand. All that stuff that we wrote in the letters, we have probably never talked about since we sent them in the mail and we went to medical school. Joe, welcome.
2: Thank you. Um, So uh, um, George mentioned uh, Pano Rodas. And um, as uh, Isaac Newton said, um, the reason I can see further is because I stand on the shoulders of a giant. And today, we stand on the shoulders of this giant, Pano Rodas, who's been an inspiration, a soulmate, a friend, and a mentor to us all. And even though he's not with us today in person, uh, he's in our hearts today. And everything that I say uh, up here, that we all say from up here, really has to do with uh, what Pano has taught us, where Pano has led us, how he's inspired us. Um, here's a picture of Pano. Uh, and when we were originally conceiving this Grand Rounds, this was his title, Where the Spirit Meets the Bone, divining, Defining, Delivering, and Sustaining Compassion in Medicine. And one of the things I wanted to do uh, was start out with Pano's words. Now I realize this is a busy slide and what I'd like you to do is not look at the slide, but I wanna read Pano's word because I want Pano to be embedded right in the middle of this thing. In the words of Pano, medicine in the United States has been strained throughout history by a two culture schism. That is, medicine has conceived of itself on the one hand as a science-based practice committed to the discovery and provision of empirically validated treatments for illness, and on the other hand, as a deeply humanistic, person-centered enterprise carrying complex obligations to society in general and to the whole being of individual patients suffering under the burden of illness. In the last five to 10 years, there has been a new concentrated effort to meaningfully heal, meaningfully heal this schism, and to find ways to train health professionals in a fashion that encourages them to integrate these true traditions. And this is where Pano has been leading us here at Geisel. And this is what our daughters, I think, were trying to tell us. These efforts, however, have been scattered, only variously effective and, and successful in affecting many of the problems caused by the two culture schism. For example, a majority of patients continue to report that their contacts with the medical system lack in compassion, professional burnout is high, stress-based mental health problems abound in medical trainees uh, and mature practitioners, and new economic pressures, many of which act to shrink face time between patients and their providers, are increasingly squeezing the therapeutic elements out of many medical encounters. Um, Pano goes on further to define (laughs) compassion, which he says, compassion may be defined as an emotional, intellectual, and pragmatic capacity to identify with and to share actively, meaningfully, and caringly in the experience of others. Has enormous power to catalyze the formation of trusting, therapeutically active bonds between patients and providers, to thus allow the sharing and acquisition of more information about patient illness, the behaviors or life circumstances that may be influencing illness and wellness, and patient's own internal resources for healing. To thus allow finer, speedier diagnostics and the development of more effective treatment plans, D, to activate and nourish patient optimism and commitment to healing, and E, to give health professionals the feeling that their work is personally enriching and meaningful, a space wherein they can utilize their emotional wisdom as an asset rather than as something that must be tucked out of sight behind the scientific mantle of the white coat. Compassion is hardly just a feeling. It is a core active centering force, which in the first place has always been a principal motivator and raison d'etre for persons in the healing roles, from Hippocrates to shamans, EMTs to clergy members, physicians to mental health workers. If we are not motivated by the desire to alleviate others' suffering, why would we enter into the world where others bring their suffering for cure or alleviation? Secondly, compassion is crucial to a range of intellectual competencies such as active inquiry, deep listening, ethical decision making, clinical discernment, management of the social elements which are omnipresent in medicine. Every patient comes to us with a social history, a social milieu, a family, and management of the mental and interpersonal aspects of medicine. 50% of the or more of the morbidity and mortality in the U.S. are due to behavioral causes. 30 to 50% of primary care visits are due to mental health complaints. An untold number of medical cases become complex and difficult to manage due to mental health, social, cultural, and or familial factors. Finally, compassion contributes as a centering philosophy to the cultivation of what, one, what might be best to call discipline, or a constant practice that constructively links the inextinguishable internal life of the provider to the person's tasks and responsibilities which comprise the complex external worlds of medicine from the battlefields to the cancer wards, from the pediatrician's office to the neonatal intensive care units, from the city streets to the rural trailer park. It is this kind of pervasive, unifying discipline that constitutes the core of what the American Medical Associ- Association calls professionalism. So with Pano's words, um, what we've been trying to do is to heal these schisms, to bridge these, this schism, these two cultures of medicine. And um, we've been about this tax for a number of years. Uh, as you well know uh, from your experience, Swartz Rounds first was brought to the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center in your department in pediatrics. and has been thriving here uh, for more than 12 years. Um, about six or seven years ago, one of the surgeons, a former surgeon from the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital, who had run Swat Rounds there, came to us and said, "What about doing it in the adult services?" And Swat Rounds and adult services began, uh, and uh, that's when I first got to meet Pano and uh, to to have him become a mentor, a friend, a soulmate. And as we talked, we said, why don't we try to bring these switch rounds, which had had such profound effect in many of the institutions, measurable profound effects in many of the institutions they've been going on, in terms of uh, uh, developing teamwork, uh, getting people to to, uh, face some of the difficult issues, the speed bumps that were in the road of doing medicine, of being able to talk to each other and heal each other. Uh, And so what we said is, why don't we try this between the clerkships? And at that time, the clerkships, the six clerkships, were all on the same schedule. And there was a time in between each when the students got together. And we took students from each of the six uh, clerkships. uh, And Pano, as an expert facilitator that he was, was able to get from them stories of their compassionate care, uh, stories of when compassionate care was lacking. uh, And uh, it was a wonderful experience. the Swartz Center then gave grants, and uh, we applied for and fortunate to get a grant to embed these types of switch rounds In the first years of medical school, actually in the fourth year of medical school, too. And I'm going to tell you about that in a minute. minute, We also got um, support from a generous alumna alumna, and uh, finally got a grant from the Dolan Family Foundation to help us with the whole medical center learning how to walk the talk of being of cultural compassion, of cultural caring, which we claim to be. in the year one course, which uh, the whole uh, the whole curriculum was called the profession of medicine, and we used to call the year one course uh, the "connecting hearts and mind rounds." And the pedagogy that Pano developed uh, was exactly the same from each for each course. It would start with a poem or a reflection. Um, and then, then the, the, uh, the stories of an interprofessional team linked with something going on in the courses. And I'll tell you about that in a second. Then a wonderful facilitated discussion uh, run by Pano and then a reflection. And as we went on uh, about these uh, experiences, the students said to us, you're trotting out these things that um, you know, how do you give people bad news? How do you deal with the parents? Uh, of a kid with a genetic disorder. Um, how do you deal with the anxiety that we have in ourselves? cells? And so they said, we need skills. And out of that was born a course we now have in the first year called the Psychology of Illness Patients and Providers. And in this uh, monthly, attached to the Undoctoring course in the first year, uh, there's a large group. And the large group has the same pedagogy as above with a poem, uh, patient and interprofessional team in uh, a facilitated discussion. And then uh, the students go into their small group on doctoring uh, groups where they uh, meet with mental health professionals and they're uh, learning some skills that will not only cause them to look outward towards that patient in front of them, to look inward uh, to what's going on in themselves as they try and care for these patients, developing compassion. Just as an example, the prelude to this course started at um, orientation. We are during the first three days uh, uh, based around the MSA pr- uh, principles. Medical students should be obje- uh, uh, altruistic, uh, knowledgeable, skillful, and dutiful. Each with a bunch of bullets as subheadings. Uh, we had them do an exercise in which, on the first day, we asked them what word would you like to describe yourself uh, as you ended your career? Uh, on the second day, we asked them what word would you like to describe um, somebody who is t- gonna be c- taking care of somebody you love, your parents, your children. And on the third day, we said, we did the exercise, um, what, uh, what? Supposing you were driving around in a, in a car and all of a sudden saw a church that was loaded with people uh, and you wandered over to it to see what was happening and as you wandered in, it was way in the future, it happened to be your funeral and at the funeral uh, one of your colleagues or one of your patients was, was describing you as a doctor and what word uh, would you, um, what, what, what word would you use to describe that? And we collected those on our index cards and then made a Wordle document. Here's the Wordle for the third day that the students made. You know, the, the, the more times a word is mentioned, the more, uh, the bigger the word is. But uh, as you can see, compassionate, caring, this is what they wanted their colleagues to describe themselves as. On the third days of medical school, the other two um, wordles are equally uh, important. Uh, coming up in the next few weeks, the students are going to write their own living wills, and it's not about death; it's about living a life with meaning. And I'm going to get to the whole concept of meaning later. Um, the first, uh, um, the first session this year of Uh, the psychology of illness patients and providers began with Kathy Kirkland who's in the audience doing a wonderful presentation on an introduction to narrative medicine. So the students began to be able to reflect, to write, uh, to read stories in order to read patients better. And some of the other um, uh, sessions that will be coming up uh, will be on back pain and suffering with a team taking care of somebody with back pain and a focus on how do you deal with somebody who is suffering in front of you. Um, Then, uh, a successful um, uh, session we've had in the past includes a mom who has a child with Down syndrome who had a congenital heart defect. And as I said, these are supposed to be lined up with the courses. It's at the time when the students are studying chromosomes and biochemistry and embryology of the heart in uh, their embryology course. And so they deal with um, both the patient, the daughter, the school, uh, the, the school psychologist, the pediatrician, the cardiac person, the nurse. So the whole professional team comes and talks them, a very meaningful event. The next one is when they're studying the development of the lungs. And um, um, Bill Boyle helps us bring the cystic fibrosis team there. And in that, uh, the the teenage boy with cystic fibrosis at the end has the students wear the jacket that he puts on every morning to do his chest compressions. And that whole tactile experiential thing actually is profoundly profoundly, uh, effective to the students. Uh, Another session will deal with inflammatory bowel disease in that team. Another session about uh, breast cancer decisions. Should I get a mastectomy? Or should I get, uh, you know, a lumpectomy and radiation? Should I have reconstruction? Should I not? And we have a whole uh, program here called the Patient Support Corps, which teaches medicines to be teaching medical students to be present at those decisions. Facing death, dealing with anxiety, and developing resilience uh, are all uh, sessions that we're going to do in this first year course. Um, What I wanted to do now is turn to Martha, who's going to read some selected reflections uh, that came out of last year's course uh, on the psychology of illness patients and providers.
3: I am going to read these reflections, but I'd like to set the scene for you. That um, at the last session of this course last year, which happened at at the very tail end of May, We had a uh, a lecture hall full of first year medical students who are preparing to take their first final exams and get out for the the, uh, very shortened summer that they now have. we all, what we did, uh, among other things, was to review the year uh, and all these cases that they had seen and thought about. And just for you, so that you can understand the, uh, some of these narratives, I'd just like to give you a, a tiny recap and the names of the people involved. So uh, Trish is the mother, and Hope is her child with trisomy 21 and associated congenital heart defect. Jack is the teenager with cystic fibrosis. And another thing you'll need to know is that the poem, Welcome to Holland, is the lead in to the session about Trisomy 21, uh, in which the protagonist finds out that as she arrives in the airport for a trip that she's planned uh, for many years to go to Italy, she discovers she's actually in Amsterdam and she's going to stay there. Um, so uh, at that point, uh, we, we asked the students to reflect on paper what the uh, salient points were that they learned during their year in the profession of medicine, psychology of illness. <laughs> Specifically, uh, thinking back over the year's sessions in profession of medicine, psychology of illness, what few points or stories have particularly stayed with you? And here's what they wrote with no warning at all that they were going to need to do this. Seeing how kids dealt with illness really made me reflect on my own worries. Healing is really the art of restoring order to a disruption. It's easy to become so lost in the disruption that you lose sight of the life and human being that you're caring for. It really reinforced in me how important a support system is for the patient. As family members share their struggles, I'm also reminded that family members themselves need support. I realized that illness is far more than the sum of medical facts and symptoms. It's an all-encompassing experience that includes wide ranges of emotions, reflections, and self-evaluations. What inspired me the most about Trish is how much strength she can muster in the face of the difficult situation. I've previously thought that it is the role of the physician to become the resource the patient can rely on and become stronger. But this session taught how strong many patients already are and that what we can do best is simply to be there for them and support them in their journey, inner emotions, or dealing with difficult situations. The best result is not to have the patient rely on you, but help them find courage and motivation within themselves because they have gone through so much more and have felt so much more. Meeting with Down syndrome patient and her family and meeting with cystic fibrosis patient and his family are mind-opening experiences. I rarely cry over these past five to 10 years, but I vividly remember my tears coming out. They are real. Over the profession of medicine classes, I've seen people talk about their illnesses. For many of us, when we hear that someone has trisomy 21 or CF, we think about how difficult their life is. But it's just the opposite. While life may have more challenges for these people, they do not let it stop them from living their lives. These eye-opening experiences and the reflections I had were valuable and applicable to my time in clinic. These are first year medical students. This month in pediatric clinic, I had a patient born with spina bifida who's paralyzed from the waist down due to this. Child was in a wheelchair, but that didn't stop her from being a happy child. She was playful and interactive with me during the interview. Her smile lit up the room and her laughter was infectious. (coughs) You couldn't help but smile and forget about her condition and the active problem list. Her illnesses are not just one part of her, they do not define who she is as a person. She's not a disease, just a little girl who loves all the same things as other five-year-old girls. It's important in our future practices to see each patient as a whole person and not by the illnesses they have. Hope's story was the most striking for me. Because it can be applied to so many aspects of our lives, as physicians, we have high expectations of ourselves. We plan out our lives and expect it to go exactly as planned. Welcome to Holland was a beautiful philosophy. Things can sometimes just turn out different. And if everything doesn't go as planned, I often snap at family and loved ones targeting relationships. And I realized, what if I end up in Holland? What if my child is like Hope? I need to learn to adapt and always look for beauty in any situation. And lastly, when I think back to the year of profession of medicine, I'm not as focused on the details but the overarching theme of teamwork as a means to accomplish every goal. We come into school as incredibly set, resilient individuals. We're taught from an early age that we are enough If I work hard, if I focus, if I'm compassionate and kind and smart, then I will do well for myself and my patients. Time and time again, this notion has been disproved. I need to work hard, but more importantly, I is not enough. We're only as good as the sum of our parts. We have an obligation to work well with others, to be good team members, to be there for patients, and make sure all our colleagues are too. To be open to the help of others and to be confident that as a group, we will always be better doctors and friends to our patients.
2: Thank, thank you, Martha. These um, uh, first year students then move on to the up years of the curriculum, the second, third, and fourth year. And uh, the second year is divided into uh, organ-based courses called the Scientific Basis of Medicine. And um, into seven of these courses, we've inserted similar types of rounds, so in cardiology, in hematology, in endocrinology, in reproductive, in dermatology, um, and uh, um, what's the other one? Uh, We've uh, actually inserted these types of rounds where they're studying the heart but actually, they then see a team taking care of a patient who's suffering from a heart condition, making difficult decisions, the team that, that uh, follows them. They see a patient, a panel of patients that have lymphoma as they're struggling with the nomenclature of lymphomas and all the alphabet soup of the types of regimens we, we, um, we uh, concoct for them. Uh, and they learn the real story of people who are told, you might die. Uh, or Um, One uh, uh, young man who had an unusual type of lymphoma was told in Seattle when he went out for bone marrow transplant that he ought to get his affairs in order at age 18 and go home and die. Uh, When he came back to his primary care physician in uh, Bennington, Vermont, he said, you don't look all that bad. And actually he found in the literature a way to treat this lymphoma. And uh, that uh, young man became an oncology fellow, is now an oncologist in practice. So those are the types of things they learned. They learned from Brian Remelot, a nephrologist who, when the earthquake happened in Haiti, uh, that you can go and, and serve, and he did the first, uh, Peritoneal dialysis on the central plain in Haiti uh, after the earthquake down there. In the third year, they move on to now, in every clerkship, uh, reflective rounds. Uh, One of the new exciting things this year is um, uh, in surgery. In in surgery, every week, they have reflective rounds Uh, that's sponsored by a grant from the George Washington Institute for Spirituality and Health, G Wish, Templeton Reflective Rounds. Um, and as you well know in pediatrics they have from the other side of the stethoscope rounds that we're gonna hear about in a second. And then uh, in the fourth year they go on to um, have an advanced seminar in compassion centered medicine in a course called Advanced Medical Sciences. The other thing that uh, that uh, the SWATCH grant that we got from the SWATCH Center allowed us to do was give stipends for SWATCH fellows. The first year we had six, last year we had 11. We're in the process of choosing them or sending out things to choose them this year. Um, but the, these fellows do a project or a research-oriented thing around uh, something in compassion-centered care. So for instance, after they experience the uh, compression uh, jacket that Jack wore as a cystic fibrosis patient, they learned that experiential learning uh, was, uh, w- was the way to go, was something that really embedded into them uh, what, what, uh, what things were all about. And so one of our great uh, Swartz fellows, we're going to call them Rhoda's fellows now, uh, did is um, she then, when they were studying starvation and nutrition, had a group of her classmates live on food stamps for a week. And they understood what it was to have food insecurity and how hard it was to live on such a small amount, how fatigued one got trying to find food bargains. Uh, anyhow, these switch fellows are doing great things. So uh, next we're gonna. What have you done? Oops. Next we're gonna hear from Bill Boyle. I don't know why this won't advance now. Anyhow, we're going to have a Bill Boyle with some reflections from uh, what happens in your clerkship from the other side of the stethoscope.
4: Good morning. Am I on? Yeah. Not on anymore. Okay. Technology, I don't know. Four years ago. Todd Perrett asked Tony LaMonica to create a course, to create a segment of the pediatric clerkship, um, and because he wanted the students to understand the effect on a a chronically ill child has on a family. So Tony got four or five families together who had chronically ill children, and um, they created the course called FOSS. Uh, It's from the other side of the stethoscope and it's essentially the family's side of the stethoscope. It's not the end of the stethoscope, which sometimes can be adversarial. It's the family's side of the stethoscope. Um, And they created the course. And uh, what were the requirements of the course? Well, first of all, all of the students would interview a parent of a child with a chronic condition while they were on their clerkship. And their clerkships are all over the country. Some of them are on the west coast, some of them are down uh, at the uh, Fort Defiance Indian Reservation. They are all around, uh, but they still were asked to uh, interview someone with a chronic condition. Then they had to ask four questions, which the parents had devised. I'll get to those in a minute. And then they were to write a reflection on that encounter. The students are wonderfully literate people. I don't think they ever get to use that in medical school, except during these required reflections. But they really write beautifully. And then at the end of the clerkship, they all come back together and they attend a seminar uh, with the with the family faculty. These are the questions: uh, What are your concerns today? The, the parents with chronic illness, you know, they have a problem list that's about ten. Items long, and they want the parents wanted to make sure that they dealt with the thing that they were concerned with that that brought them into the doctor that day. What do you think is the cause? And a lot of the students were reluctant to ask that. They say, you know, why should I ask the parent what they think is going on? And then they realize, hey. These people take care of this kid every day, and they know exactly what 's going on, and they say, "I think the shunt is plugged because the last three times I've been in the hospital, the shunt was plugged, <laughs> so I think I know exactly what 's going on and then they ask a couple of questions of how how is this reacting with the family, and then how does your function how does your family function normally, and what happens now and frequently the the unexpected hospitalization just throws the whole family up in the air. They don't know about childcare. They have to miss work. It's, it's a completely different scenario. Um, and so I think I, what I wanna do now is uh, go over some of the reflections. And I can talk while you sort of look at the reflections. Um, the first one really is concerns a mother who was was just being very adversarial. And, and essentially, she was reflecting her guilt uh, for having a child who was ill. Uh, she was getting a lot of heat from her family uh, because why could you let this happen to your child? And then I think the second one is just really very moving. And these are the comments of the mother who had a congenitally blind child. and uh, uh, and. Uh, she was essentially it destroyed her relationship with her husband. She was divorced, um, but she's able to then reflect about life is about being able to readjust into, uh, into what comes your way. And then this is the this is the one that I I really uh, enjoyed. Uh, how would you like to have that? You know, here's an add-on. Nothing nothing acute. He's having trouble with his hearing aid. So as a student, you go in there and before you go in, you look and it says he has uh, Treacher-Collins syndrome, which is an autosomal dominant uh, genetic condition in which there's mid-face changes, um, they they have slanty eyes, they obviously look different, and they have hearing loss and abnormal ears. And so the student walked in uh, and saw this child with Treacher-Collins there, with his grandmother, who also had Treacher Collins, and the mother had Treacher Collins. And she then described their family life and how this boy really got along well in school. He was in the third grade. He was really very happy. But he felt that a hearing aid would single him out as being different, so he threw it away. <laughs> uh, uh, because he was able to cope with all of the uh, issues of Treacher Collins, but not with that. And then um, this is the one I like, and I can tell it's not from Chad because, first of all, we don't have room for, us for 17. Years. <laughs> and secondly, I hope we don't refer to ki- oh the asthma kid. Um, anyway, the asthma kid uh, was in 417, and he said, You know, the, the preceptor said, Don't deal with all of his complex issues, just take care of his asthma. So he walked in and realized this diagnosis that he had all of these things going on, um, and he sat down and realized that this was again a single mother who had two other children at home, and it was a loving uh, situation that really um, really changed his whole concept of uh, what was going on. And, and then lastly, this is a student, um, uh, who was trying to get out of the scientific basis of medicine and really understanding uh, about the social concepts of the disease uh, and what was going on. And and then this is is just something that I, I thought of. Imprinting is a biologic concept that something that happens early in life can have profound effects on your behavior later on. Now, most of these students are not gonna become pediatricians. But we hope that FOSS will make them more caring and compassionate physicians as they practice in whatever discipline they choose. you.
2: So um, I'm going to uh, actually truncate this a bit. Um, last year, Bill and I were actually interviewed in an article called Medicine's Search for Meaning. It was about Rachel Remond's Healer's Art Course in the uh, uh, New York Times in an, an Opinionator column. And uh, this article actually got more responses to the New York Times than any other article last year, Medicine's Search for Meaning. and actually caused a follow-up a- a- article called Who Will Heal the Doctors? Um, and uh, the, the bottom line and something I've come to realize, I've been sick over the last year is that One can tolerate almost any how if one knows why. And no need is so compelling as the need we all feel for our lives to make sense, to have meaning. We will tolerate almost any degree of austerity or risk in in this indomitable quest for meaning. Um, And I met uh, a guy uh, at University of Michigan, Vic Strecker, who actually uh, had a daughter who died from varicella uh, cardiomyopathy, had a cardiac transplant, but lived her life with such full purpose until the mid-20s that, he, he, uh, that she taught Vic a whole bunch of things about living with purpose, living with meaning. Uh, and there are other gurus in this, Viktor Frankl who uh, uh, wrote Man's Search for Mer- uh, Meaning, Parker Palmer and uh, Chip Schober even wrote Academic Medicine in the Search for Meaning, which is a wonderful article. Bottom line is, as, as Pano said, that our behaviors are killing us. We have a huge uh, industry uh, uh, trying to deal with chronic disease and maybe we have a different message that, that, uh, that if we lived our lives with meaning, maybe we wouldn't do the stupid behavioral things that cause us to get sick. And one thing that Vic did uh, was produce a video of uh, 90-year-old women, he produced it for Kaiser, Uh, who were dancing. Uh, They were doing cartwheels down the football field on the side of the field as cheerleaders. Uh, They were uh, with their grandchildren. And the whole time the video was playing, uh, it was, when I grow up, I wanna be an old woman, and this very cheery song. And at the end on the screen flashed, by the way, get a mammogram. And that particular uh, video caused more people to get a mammogram in the Kaiser system than any other one. And so maybe it was about meaning. And so I'm gonna um, just go to um, uh, some things. Uh, there's some, all kinds of data about uh, meaning. Um, there's a researcher at Ohio State who was trying to get people to stop smoking. And what she did, was she had the, half of the group write down their core values, just record the, the uh, events of the week. And those people that wrote down the core values were two times more likely to quit um, smoking uh, than those who didn't. Um, app, app, affirmation reduces defensiveness. Di- via uh, 12, sendes- uh, 12 send- transcend- transcendence. So questions of meaning, I have a sense of direction and purpose in my life. Some people want to aimlessly through life, but I'm not one of those. I sometimes feel I've done all there is to do in life. Um, and um, one of the neat things about meaning is there's a million studies now about meaning and its effect on health. Uh, with scientific basis, uh, meaning those people that have meaning live longer. Uh, Actually, a prospective study of patients with Alzheimer's disease, early stage uh, Alzheimer's disease, those people who evidenced meaning and purpose were, took twice as long to get institutionalized that those didn't. Uh, And then uh, relapse from cocaine abuse. Those patients who were um, cocaine abusers who had meaning and and purpose in their life were twice less likely to relapse from their uh, cocaine abuse than those that didn't have it. And, and even this, science, this hard science to us, uh, one of the uh, Nobel Prize laureates at uh, University of California, San Francisco uh, measures an uh, uh, enzyme called telomerase, which is sort of the, the ends of our chromosomes are sort of like the aglets of the shoelaces, uh, and they, they have this uh, binding that uh, when it when it. Uh, actually goes away, the chromosomes begin to unravel and we die, and if we have more of an enzyme called telomerase, uh, then then actually the chromosomes stay intact longer, and we actually live longer, the immune function is better, and those people that had meaning and purpose in their lives, those people that meditated and were mindful, were more likely to have higher telomerase levels. And um, there's other studies about something called hedonic versus eudaemonic happiness. And hedonic sort of is he who has the most toys wins, and eudaimonic is I get outside of myself to, my, I get, get drive my happiness for doing things outside of myself. And you can be equally happy, eudaimonically or hedonically. that those people that have eudaimonic happiness Had lower levels of inflammatory protein, lower CRP, lower, and those things correlate correlate with all kinds of of bad things that uh, are are good things that happen to our our arteries and vessels. You know that atherosclerotic seems to be uh, higher in those people that have higher inflammatory proteins. So we can have meaning. Meaning comes from work. Um, So uh, I'm just going to go to the end here and. just talk about uh, uh, what if we had a pill that could uh, reduce mean, meaningless life, uh, some of the side effects. I, I get up in the morning and I take my, my uh, statins and my ACE inhibitors and stuff like that and you read all the side effects of those pills and actually you might be able to, to do the same types of things for your health and behaviors by leading a more meaningful life and these things, the side effects could be chronic grat- gratitude, forgiveness, Innovation, better sex, creativity, more friends, stronger family, productivity, giddiness, and eudaimonic happiness. Um, so, Dean Ornish, uh, who is a um, advocate of diet and its effect on health, uh, asks these questions of his patients: What's going on in your high, life? What with your job? With your family? Your marriage? Your kids? What gives your life meaning? Um, and uh, Well, medicine, uh, this is a quote by Oscar Wilde I love, is no enemies, but is intensely disliked by his friend. (laughs) So if we could have meaning in academic medicine, this is where Chip comes in. He wrote this wonderful article on academic medicine, the search for meaning. And in what George talked about the seminar um, that I gave him, it was that work can provide those moments of spiritual and personal as well as financial growth. Uh, it does, if it doesn't, we're wasting far too much of our time of it. And um, some of the people in this department, Craig Donley, um, who is in uh, pediatric psychiatry, is a big um, advocate of developing resilience. And there's been a lot of um, sort of literature these days about factors that lead to resilience. And there are these factors here uh, that have been shown to increase resilience. In people that like were in the Hanoi, Hanoi Hilton, uh, and uh, in people that are training to be special forces, um, and people who have faced all kinds of life challenges. These 10 things uh, lead to <coughs> resilience. And of these, the most important seems to be meaning and purpose. So how do we lead a meaningful life? And uh, I'm just gonna finish this by um, by saying that um, the center of the center at this institution for delivering compassionate care resides in this department of pediatrics. Um, and we must nurture it constantly in ourselves, in our students, the trainees, in our colleagues, and in this institution. And what we must do is at every, every effort, we must water it and, and nourish it, uh, add nutrients to the soil, so we can let a thousand beautiful flowers bloom. And again, uh, thank you very much for for letting us come to you to talk about the efforts that we have to actually uh, foster compassion, to uh, keep it alive in the students, to foster resilience, to foster meaning and purpose in their lives. And uh, I want to especially thank uh, Virgil. Uh, Virgil was the guy that led Dante through the, the Inferno, and uh, our Virgil is uh, Pano Rodas, and thank you so much to Pano, so.
0: its meaning. So I will allow anyone who wants to come down and speak to our luminaries, please do so. And otherwise, uh, have a good day. Good meeting in your <laughs>